When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Today on the Everything 80s podcast, the review of the Dark Crystal Age of Resistance and the original Dark Crystal movie. guys what's happening welcome back to the podcast i'm jamie this is everything 80s and today we're looking at the mind-blowingly good dark crystal age of resistance series that came out on netflix and it came out i think august 30th so i took a few days to go through everything rewatch the original movie i'll get into that in a bit I haven't seen that in a long time but we'll cover kind of the origins of the original movie everything jim henson intended with it and then this like remarkable new series. So before we start, here's that obligatory subscribe to the podcast. You've heard this a million times, but wherever you get your podcasts, I think I'm pretty much on every platform you can be on podcast wise. So subscribe, then you get the shows coming to you automatically. Okay, let's get into this. So growing up, I was more of a labyrinth guy than the dark crystal. I think because the dark crystal goes back quite a ways it's back to 1982 which is pretty old um, considering the legacy of the Muppets and everything like that and again it wasn't that approachable for kids I was only I definitely didn't see it when it first came out um that was 82 I was like five years old and like this was not the original Dark Crystal is not a kid's movie and so I, I had seen it like at a friend's house I remember when it had come out on video which was like way later on so it was maybe like I don't know if it came out in 86. I don't know, whenever it was. So I was a bit, even still maybe a touch young. And remember, I remember being pretty overwhelmed with it. And this was a case for a lot of people too, because they weren't exactly sure what they were going into. Because you've got the Muppets, which are obviously a worldwide phenomenon as far as the Muppet show and Sesame Street. And the Muppet movie had come out a few years before. So people were expecting that they were going into, uh, um, when they were going to see The Dark Crystal, they were expecting to go see like another Muppet movie or like Kermit's going to be in it somehow. But that's clearly not what they got. So I haven't seen the original Dark Crystal in decades. And so I recently rewatched it before going into The Dark Crystal Age of Resistance. And it holds up amazingly well. And it's still an amazing, incredible spectacle today, considering how it's pretty much, it well, actually is completely puppet based. There's a few little effects in it as far as like uh, little bits of animation. Not, it's not even CGI, that's way before, but tiny bits of animation. They do a great balance uh, between, you know, realistic looking puppets, but then there's some like real life. Uh, performances mixed in you know people like in costume but it gave it much more of a realistic realistic effect compared to like you know in the Muppets take Manhattan when you've got a human obviously in a pig costume roller skating through Central Park they blend these pretty seamlessly together and 
So here's a quick rundown on the original Dark Crystal. So a thousand years ago, there is a magical crystal that when cracked had two new races formed from it. The Skeksis, who look a lot like Razar, if you remember from the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 2 movie, The Secret of the Ooze, and they also split with the Mystics. So we've got a hero in this story, and it's uh, from the race of Gelfling, and his name is Jen. And he's taken in by the mystics as he is the last remaining Gelfing. He is told that he can repair the crystal if he finds a shard. And if he doesn't, before the three signs, three suns combine, I think they call the great conjunction, then it'll be game over for the Skeksis. Or Skeksis. I'm never sure how they actually want me to pronounce that. So the movie involves Jen's quest to find the shard while trying to avoid certain death from the Skeksis um, and the Gartham, these giant sort of um, crab-like creatures. On his way, he finds out he's not the only Gelf- Gelfling left, and he meets Kira. So Jen is able to eventually place the shard back in the crystal, stop the Skeksis, and he transforms the castle into a giant new sort of crystal palace type thing. And then the Skeksis and the Mystics merge into one super being, which is how things were always supposed to be. Those two new combined beings are called the Urskeks. Uh, they beam away. They leave uh, the new crystal to Jen and Kira and just restore sort of balance and unity to the world. So I won't go a ton into the Dark Crystal, that might, the original. That might have to be its own separate podcast. But it really is a, a remarkable movie. And like I said, it's been a good 20 plus years since, I, since I've seen it. But it's like it's really magical still it it really captures this sort of sense and tone to it it's got that standard you know the joseph campbell hero's journey as far as jen like being a very you know luke skywalker type situation um and there's a lot of other movies you you probably if you haven't seen this before if it's been a while you're going to connect a lot of movies that it parallels with like lord of the rings probably the biggest the hobbit um empire strikes back and return of the jedi you see a lot of Avatar, even Planet of the Apes. You see a lot of these connections. So, again, I forgot this movie came, went way back to 1982. It has some real themes of, you know, unity and mysticism and the, the balance between good and evil that exists in a person and how they're always sort of in conflict with each other. And we're, it's like we're two different people all the time. And the influence for Jim Henson comes from, from what it is reported, just a simple illustration from a 1975 book of Lewis Carroll poetry. And this illustration just sort of captured his imagination. And he, his intent with it was to go back to those darker Grimm's fairy tale stories that, you know, again, display those definite themes of good and evil. And it was just always that I, Jim Henson was sort of on record for saying he thought it was good for kids to be scared because it can kind of put them more in tune with humanity and those, you know, those dual sides to the human existence. I don't know. I get like, I don't know what the intended age was for this movie. Definitely not little kids, but like 12 year olds. It's, it's, I think he considered it more of an adult movie. It just happened to use puppetry. And I don't know, here, a few more insights in the dark crystal. So he wrote the main uh, full, like a 25 page treatment while at an airport hotel once and it was actually the very first live action film that had no humans on screen. Henson himself was a performer for Jen and Frank Oz, who was the other like producer and creator, he operated Agra in that. Originally was gonna do the voice of Agra, but then they switched it up. 
So the Skeksis, even though there was 10 of them, they were to represent the seven deadly sins. The The Podling Village was based on the Henson family home. So the Dark Crystal comes out December 17th, 1982, and it opens on 885, 800, sorry, 58 screens, which is kind of average for back then. Now, like with big movie releases, it's like 3,000. So the issue regarding the movie is like I said before the dark tones of the film were the reasons many families stayed away from it again those were those who were expecting another Muppet movie after the success of just a few years earlier were just kind of like mortified and stayed away the other problem is it opened on the same weekend as two massive movies in E.T. and Tootsie and E.T. would end up being the highest grossing film of all time I think until like Jurassic Park. I forget how that goes. Whatever. E.T. was like the juggernaut for those next few years. And Tootsie was a massive movie as well. And then there was decent word of mouth though. And it did find its audience and it ended up making over 40 million at the time. So it was able to make back its money and turn a profit. So it was far from a failure. And over the years, the legacy of the Dark Crystal has grown. And it's, I, I wouldn't say a it has a cult following because it, it's got sort of a bigger, wider reach than that. But it, it's it's grown a bigger audience. And Jim Henson had been talking about a sequel even in production back in 82. So over the years, various talks for a sequel have continued. Like in 2006, there was a, kind of an approach to do it. In 2011, there was as well. Uh, but things just never moved forward. But as usual, Netflix comes to the rescue and started production on a sequel. Well, it, you'll find that it's actually a prequel in 2017. And some of the writers were actually writing a Labyrinth sequel, sequel, which is kind of exciting and mind-blowing. And then the idea turned to the production of doing The Dark Crystal, and they were uh, like a sequel to it. And they were originally going to do it as a full CGI-based movie. And then they played around with the idea of uh, keeping half puppetry with the Skeksis would be real life performers. And then the Gelflings and everything else would be animated around it. And they, they looked at it and they were, it like looked okay, but it just doesn't capture that real life essence that puppets have. Well, you know, a real life object, whether it's a puppet or a person does it CGI just will never be able to do. And then they decided to scrap that and go full on with the, with a, like a return to the proper puppet based, um, production to create this dark crystal and they brought in the writers or, or I think producers and directors who did lost. And like I said, these writers who are working on the labyrinth sequel. So <clears throat> everyone who's involved is just completely passionate about this whole thing and this whole world. So that brings us now to the dark crystal age of resistance. So what I'm going to do is go through each episode, um, kind of quick summaries of each just to break it down. So obviously there's spoilers all over the place here. You've been warned, turn this off now or, Better yet, go watch the series, come back, and then um, listen to me sort of break it down and discuss what's happening and, you know, the whole overall um, series as a whole. And remember, this is a series with the plans of at least another one, but who knows how many. So we're dealing with all the events prior to the original 1982 movie. So I don't know if there's going to be five series or, well, with the way the events finish up, in this and a kind of a few teasers. I, I don't think it's that far off, but who knows? I don't know. You can stretch, like look what they did with the Hobbit movie. You can stretch that thing into tons of sequels or like they're doing with uh, 
Better Call Saul before Breaking Bad, <clears throat> which is brilliant, by the way, that you're, you're thinking like with the first season or two, it's immediately going to go into the events of Breaking Bad, but it's it's dragging it out is the wrong word, but it's really going at a slower, deliberate pace and not rushing things towards. So even though it's taking the events kind of close to it, it's really stretching them out. And that's what makes Better Call Saul amazing. That's a whole other thing. Okay, so episode one is entitled End Begin All the Same. So the first episode is this unbelievable return of the Dark Crystal world. And it's such an amazing reintroduction. This honestly, if you have, I hate, hated that I watched this on my laptop because I've got a decently size, a 55 inch screen TV um, and a sound bar, but I wanted to be able to like write notes and sort of, you know, take things in. I was going, it just felt a bit easier, which is kind of stupid, but like this whole series, even the first episode should be seen on an IMAX screen. That's how amazing it is. And I wish they would somehow release this in theaters, but like I'll watch it but more for like the immersiveness of the sound. And you want one of those like wraparound screens that takes up the majority of the theater. But again, it's so the design and the production is so immersive that sometimes you, you can't even believe what you're looking at. And like, I'm not for the record, I'm not a big as much as I love all these classic, you know, movies and stuff, I'm not a big full out just fantasy person. Like I, I don't love, you know, Lord of the Rings as much as everyone else. And, you know, I prefer overall like real life based stuff and documentaries and whatever. So f- fantasy is hard to keep my attention, but th- this is just nuts. And between like real life vistas and photorealism and the CGI and the amazing puppetry, you get this perfect blend of creating this fantasy world. So to start it off, we're back on the world of Thra and we get an introduction. It's very Lord of the Rings ish explaining what the world is all about. It's narrated by Sigourney Weaver. We learn about the crystal and its protector Agra. The crystal connects all the creatures of Thra. We learn of the seven different races of Gelflings. So Thra had always been in perfect balance, but then the Skeksis came and because of the original movie, we understand why. Uh, which again, they get into later. So they have become lords and leaders of the lands and the Gelflings live in servitude towards them. We find out the Skeksis who have had the crystal entrusted to them are using it to harness power to give themselves longer lives. They are taking the essence of it, but it's not working as well as it had been. The Gelflings have no idea about this and they just are trusting the Skeksis. So we will later find out the Skeksis realize they can harness the power and extract the essence from the creature who is most in tune with the world of Thra, and that's the Gelflings. And again, you already know this from watching the original movie. In the first episode, we meet some of the main characters, including Bria, who's a Gelfling princess, Rian, who's the son of a warrior, or like the lead guard, um, Kylan, another one, Mira. And there's some big name voices in the show. It's primarily like a British production. So most of the accents are all English, but you've got uh, Helena Bonham Carter. She plays the all Madra, like the queen. Eddie Izzard plays Kadia. Um, Alicia Vikander. I think she was in um, the Tomb Raider movie. She's Mira. Simon Pegg does the Chamberlain and a bit of a Jar Jar Binks impression. If you ask me, Mark Hamill plays the scientist and, amazing sort of star scream dr zayas combination harvey firestein plays the gourmand like the head sort of chef skexis which is awesome just to hear him 
And I don't know if that's any relation to if you've seen the Star Wars holiday special, you know who Gormanda is. If you don't, I'll have to get into that later. Andy Samberg is actually in this as the heretic. He's one of the Skeksis who breaks from the clan. And Bill Hader, who's a very notable voice actor now. You'd have no idea it was him. He plays one of the mystics who's a wanderer. And that's just among a ton of other people. So over this episode, this first episode, we we get introduced to the sanctuary tree, which seems right out of Avatar. Uh, it can show visions. It's very important in the future. We get some um, these sort of Audrey 2 looking little shop of horrors, plants from the underground that, you know, are in tune with the earth. There's a you see things like the dusting of one of the Skeksis that they are now maybe more fragile than they realize. There's a great callback line from the original movie when you see one of the Gelfling girls flies because she has wings. And she says, of course I have wings. I'm a girl, which is a callback line to the original one. So again, this is a quick overview of it and just looking at each episode. So for this one, an incredible first episode. It returns to the magic of the original Dark Crystal, but massively updated with technology, but not for technology's sake, but to to enhance the world. You know, like you can tell the movies where they sort of overdo it with CGI and stuff like this. This just, it, it's, I don't know, incredible. And also a, a great reminder of how terrific the production was back in 1982. But again, this just looks unreal. And there's so much inclusion of their world in this first episode. So you feel like you're already fully immersed in it. We get introduced to a bunch of the main characters. We learn of the evil plan of the Skeksis, and you know, which sets up the rest of the series in the original movie. So I gave that first episode a nine out of ten. Episode two is entitled Nothing is Simple Anymore. So we start with Agra, who's been in sort of a form of a coma for a while, where she's sort of traveling around the universe. Um, she apparently she is created by when the world, when Thra was created, she was created in conjunction with the crystal. So she's in tune with the whole universe, everything like that. So she's been awakened because there's <laughs> something to do with the force going on, but that's kind of actually what it is. That something sinister is happening within the world of Thra. So she must be aware of what the Skeksis are doing or else she wouldn't have woken up. We catch up with a character named Deet, who is kind of like the, Steve Irwin of all the Gelflings, like she works with the animals and feeds them and she's very in tune with them. So she's, um, again, in the first episode, there's an attack by those Audrey two type creatures. Um, she's on her way to the land called hurrah. The Skeksis are now on the lookout for Rian because again, these are spoilers. Now they took his girlfriend Mira and basically killed her and took the essence out. Of it, he saw what they did. He realizes what their real intent is. They know he knows, so they need him taken out of the picture. And they decide to frame him to do this. So the emperor of the Skeksis, not Palpatine, but their emperor, wants more of this essence, which is like the life force they suck out into an actual physical liquid because they desire eternal life. There's some real, again, back to the original, some real like religious undertones in this. Um, series and world and as a whole so they there's also this funny musical interlude where they do their version of the cantina house band with some little creatures they call podlings and the band ones who look a lot like the gorgs from freckle rock so rian is now trying to escape from the castle and this episode had some 
to me, like real cool return of the Jedi vibes to it. So like Rian's a fugitive and he's trying to share the truth of what the Skeksis are all about. They do this with a, what do they call that? A dream cast or dream fast where the two Gelflings, they do sort of this cosmic handshake together and they can sort of see everything. So Deet is still kind of on the lamb as she's trying to escape from that sort of underground terror and everything she went through. Um, and then she survives a spider attack from another podling named Hup, who's just adorable. Now, Princess Bria, uh, she's voiced by, what's that girl's name? Anya Taylor Thomas, I think. She's in um, that, what was the, that glass movie? She was in that movie, The Witch, which is horrifying. So she's trying to track down the symbol that she got in the first episode, and she's trying to figure out what this means. The symbol pops up quite a bit. So she visits uh, this amazing looking library and sort of the, I guess, chief librarian. Um, she pulls a switcheroo on him by giving him this like uh, sort of truth serum thing. And, and he's able to talk. She finds out the symbol is kind of this, you know, that great conjunction end of the world thing or a chance for a new beginning with uh, the Gelfling who I swear is Craig Ferguson. I don't know if I checked it out. Sounds very Sean Connery ish though. So Rianne is able to escape with the leftover essence of his departed girlfriend, Mira, and Deet is continuing her Bilbo Baggins sort of journey to Mordor. Then we've, you know, through the whole mix, we are seeing what the Chamberlain is doing. You remember the Chamberlain from the original one. Uh, he's contorting a plan to get the essence back while trying to keep quiet that he had stolen it for himself. He's also turned things on the scientist. That's Mark Hamill. Um, who's going to face the wrath of punishment for them screwing up and letting Rian get away and all this sort of thing. And they, they torture him with this sort of fear factor thing where his eye gets popped out. And that's why he's got this sort of like laser eye thing. So in this episode, to sum it up, it's cool to see the direction with the Skeksis um, that they're going. Cause that we know how it's going to play out in the original dark crystal movie. We're seeing all the lies and deception along with their lust for power and the whole eternal life thing. So with this episode, and I'll probably say this for everyone, this one again looks amazing. Like the backgrounds and environment created for the show, like I, I can't believe there'd be production values of this level for a Netflix series. I know that Netflix is, it is essentially you're dealing with, you know, the same production and stuff that movies would. And, you know, I don't know if the budgets are the same. Like, say with Stranger Things Season 3, the production levels are amazing. They grow, but, like, this is nuts. Like, every episode is, like, its own movie. And I'm still not even sure, like, what the budget was for this whole series as I was trying to find it. But as they are, like, Netflix is obviously now this juggernaut that they're able to put more money into it. But, again, like it's, it's mind-blowing. So I gave this episode... A 7 out of 10. Okay, so let's go to episode 3. And that's entitled, What Was Sundered and Undone? Which is actually a line from the prophecy from the original movie. When, if you remember, Jen is reading about how it's, you know, prophesied that a Gelfling will save the world and all this sort of stuff. That's one of the lines from this uh, house thing they go in to visit. So we start with this episode with seeing Bria having to kind of fraternize with the podlings and her sisters are complaining about her general attitude towards life and being, you know, part of the royal family. That smear campaign against Rianne is working as other Gelflings now associate him with actually murdering 
Kira as opposed to that we know the Skeksis did it. Rian now knows that the whole we protect the lords and they protect the crystal truth thing that all Gelflings live by is all a big lie. Deet is finding out that all Gelflings are not as tight as she thought. Um, there's real division between all the different clans or tribes or whatever you want to call them. Um, Rian is being told he's going crazy. You know, no one's believing what he's seeing, but he's able to fight back against his father and the guards are trying to capture again, capture him again in a very sort of Zorro three musketeers type scene. Agra returns to the palace to see the crystal and catches the Skeksis in their version of kind of a steam room, but they remove her as being connected to Thra. They're, they're trying to get her out of the picture because she knows she's way too involved with the whole world and knows ultimately what they're all about. She has then learned the truth behind the darkening um, of everything and that the, the Skeksis stealing essence from Mira for life everlasting is part of everything to do with the darkening. It's basically everything's come out, become out of balance and her job is to do what she can to restore it. But knowing the Gelflings are going to be a big part of that. So few things noticed in this episode, the land striders that they ride around sound exactly like the Tauntauns from Empire Strikes Back. I don't know if that's a coincidence. The Gelflings have four fingers, which I just noticed, which seems very Simpsons like. Um, and again, this episode has that real theme. I get, well, all of them do, but this one specifically of how humanity treats each other and how not only do, you know, the problems with treating yourself with this sort of good and evil that exists, um, between a person, but how mankind treats mankind. Again, the themes that go back to the original movie. So this episode's very character and plot focused episode. Again, one that still looks incredible. It's a bit slower pace, and it had that real Lord of the Rings feel to it, to me, which you'd probably pick up on, too. Uh, again, like, the worlds are so... That library set is so incredible with how vast and deep it is. Like, better than any sort of... You know, you kind of want them to remake Harry Potter now to see, like, how they kind of created even better-looking worlds than those old ones. Uh, even, like, the snow-covered town of um, Haraz, they go there. Everything... So good. So I gave this one episode another 7 out of 10. Episode 4 is called The First Thing I Remember is Fire. So we left episode 3 with Bria descending beneath the throne in the castle. And we open up on Hup, who's in prison. Uh, but then Deet swoops in to save the day, looking a lot like Poison Ivy from that terrible Batman and Robin movie. Bria has stumbled upon a room that contains the seven symbols of the seven clans of Gelflings. And that you know the natural order needs to be found. So while that's all going on, the Skeksis are having this big smorgasbord dinner and deciding how the Gelflings can be used for their own gain. And now we're starting to see more of a divide between the Skeksis and the Chamberlain. And the Chamberlain now uses this ancient horn to summon the Hunter, who basically looks like a Skeletor Skeksis, who is the most brutal of all of them and who's more able to capture Rian, which is still... He still escaped them. We then meet the archer, who's one of those old mystics from the original Dark Crystal. You know, the big sort of sloth type looking things. Here's a fun fact from the old one. Those costumes were so heavy, apparently, that Jim Henson would, you know, try to do some of the performance with them, but he could only do five to ten seconds at a time because they were that heavy. So the archer lets us know that the mystics are in hiding and they still exist 
until needed. So not a lot of people have ever met a mystic. Bria makes a discovery into the true order of the clans. And then we meet uh, this sort of praying mantis rock type creature that has a record player attached to him somehow. Back in the podling Ewok village, the podlings are getting just crazy with this big sort of podling party. Rianne's sort of laying low in the midst of all this. And now the idea, the different tribes of Gelfing are now getting kind of the idea that the Skeksis maybe aren't the most noble of creatures. And they have a, this big sort of communal dream fast thing, kind of like a giant group FaceTime where the idea is spreading that they might not be um, the ideal leaders and lords they had been sort of conditioned to think. So a few notes from this episode. Again, I don't know if some of the footage for some of the landscapes has to be real. If not, it's so photorealistic and CGI done, you would not know the difference. This one, this episode seemed to have more CGI puppet action, which I'm fine with because if it's something like a physical real life puppet can't do, it's just these small little clips where it blends. Like if the thing, if the puppet's like, I don't know, jumping over something or running, it's just spliced in just quick enough that it's, it's sort of seamless. So it works really well. The archer in this seems to be the only non Brit in the whole thing. And it, to me has a bit of a native American sense to him and this sort of wise elder thing. I don't know if that was their intent with them. Again, I don't usually notice this type of thing cause I don't know anything, but the camera work in this episode is amazing. The way kind of the camera sort of swoops in like it's like, you, you know, this stuff is made on a set, you know, like how they're filming it. Everyone's seen those pictures of like green screens, but the way the camera moves through everything, you, you feel like you're in this 360 degree actual real environment and, and how it cuts and the pans. And I, I don't know if other people notice this. I don't know if I normally do either, but it's that notable. It's amazing. Okay. So wrapping this up, probably the most intense episode but moves at a great pace, has a real darker feeling like the original movie, which I really loved. The The introduction of the hunter is amazing. He's got this predator type vibe to him. The battle scene at the end is awesome. I, like you forget you're watching puppets sometimes and you forget there's a person's hand inside this thing, bringing this thing to life. Um, like you're that drawn in by it. It's it, awesome. This To me, this is like a full 10 out of 10 episode. Okay, episode five. Entitled, She Knows All the Secrets. So we start with Rianne hanging upside down, Luke Skywalker style, That after he's been captured by the hunter. The Chamberlain needs to take Rianne back to the castle himself to try to get you know back in the good graces of the other Skeksis. So Bria's sister's trying to find out what is up with the Skeksis on her own. She has three sisters. So they're walking around. It seems very Jabba the Hutt underground uh, chamber here. The Skeksis are trying to round up Gelflings, to help them battle a resistance they feel is coming. And the Chamberlain is dishing out some real psychological warfare to Rian, like trying to convince him that he didn't see what he thought he saw and stuff like that. So he kind of puts a decision on Rian that he can help to avoid war and he has to give into it. So at the meantime, Augur is still trying to connect with Thra, the world Thra by playing this little dice game and she's eating leaves and all this stuff to sort of see what's up with everything because the darkening is spreading. And we see that in like the purple eyes of the animals. And if you remember from the movie, anything to do with the darkening is all 
purple. It's an energy that exists. Again, the force, if you will. So while it's going on, Deet transforms into Elsa from Frozen looking to sneak through the gates in the town to see the Gelfling Queen or the Almadra, who's uh, Helena Bonham Carter, who's basically the first lady of all fantasy weird-based films. She's like the go-to choice, it seems like, in anything like that. Rian ends up making a daring escape, and this episode's all about the connect- connectivity between the Gelflings, Agra, and Thra, and they all exist sort of together. We get a dream sequence that reveals the plan of the Skeksis, and Bria, Deet, and Rian have to join forces to you know, create a resistance and set that in motion. We end with the death of a traitor who goes against her own kind. I, I'm giving, I'll leave some open, you know, even though there are spoilers here. So summing this one up, this episode is setting things in motion, I think, for the second half of the series. It's establishing alliances, allegiances, and it's furthering that division between the Skeksis and basically everyone else. It, to me, not as engaging as the other episodes so far, but it's there to sort of drive the story forward. We also get our first mention of the Shard and how important that is. So this one's like, you know, a six and a half, seven. I hate rating these things. It's probably a bad idea because it implies summer. Some are just maybe stronger or appeal to you more than the others. And it's hard to say one is lesser than that with how good the series is in and how much is put into it. But if I'm rating it, yeah, six and a half-ish, seven out of ten. Okay, episode six by Gelfling Hand. So it starts with that quote, It's hard to recognize the light when you've spent your whole life in the dark. So Bria's sister has sold her out along with all the other Gelflings. We get another appearance of that stone praying mantis demogorgon thing who busts out from the castle throne, goes to rescue Bria. The Gelflings turn on the Chamberlain while Bria's sister is starting to get kind of drunk with power as she assumes control and command. Now, though, meanwhile, the word is spreading about the true intent and action of the Skeksis. So, again, things get more Lord of the Rings-ish in this episode as... We've got a band of Gelflings are traveling across uh, the Crystal Desert, which looks a lot like Utah or uh, out of the original Planet of the Apes. The Gelflings in the desert, they have this bonding session where, again, you know all the spoilers, or I've already said spoilers. So Bria's mother is killed. So they say goodbye to her and do like a send-off service where they burn her Darth Vader style in the desert. Uh, the Skeksis, now we turn, we go back to them. They are, they have more essence now they're consuming and they are just, you know, now they're driven power, like mad with more power because, you know, the essence gives them strength and everything like that. And that grows and grows over each episode. So the traveling band in the the desert, they meet um, another Gelfin called uh, Recre, I think. And the, the group splits up to continue their various journey, journeys. So meanwhile, Bria's sister, Celadon, again, is taking it upon herself to be queen. And that ep- this episode ends on a very powerful note as we're seeing how she is more siding with the Skeksis as opposed to her own Gelfling. So a few observations in this one. Again, I know nothing on production or anything like or how this is done, but the lighting in this series, too, is so incredible. Like again, those things, 
they're obviously that good if I notice them and I notice nothing. I think I'm very aware of what I'm watching, but specifically like the way they light these things is awesome. This episode was a touch on the funny side, specifically between the Skeksis. You're seeing a little more of this sort of, I guess, maybe will eventually be a romance with Rianne and Deet. And and just for the record, any scene with Harvey Firestein is awesome. So the more of him, the better. To me, this one... This one lags a little bit, but mainly because everyone is in the midst of a journey now, whether it's an internal journey uh, or a physical one they're on. So everyone's sort of on the move and discovering things. So again, yeah, lags the wrong word, but it's, it's at a deliberate pace, this one. So, but you know, we're seeing the fires of resistance growing. Uh, And this episode has a very game of Thrones feel to it. So, this is another, you know, one of those six and a half, seven out of 10 episodes to me. Again, you know, th- this is just my opinion and people might read into things a bit different. Episode seven, time to make my move. We start in a very Tatooine looking desert with Hup puking up a lung. The rock Demogorgon has managed to save the Gelflings from an amazing looking sandstorm. Again, the, the, <laughs> the photorealism in this is nuts. That's, I'd love to see this on IMAX if that is even something that's ever possible. We now get more comic relief here where we meet a good Skeksis named Skek Grah, the Conqueror, voiced by Andy Samberg, doing his best Yoda impersonation with a bit of Adam Sandler thrown in, if you ask me. So Skek Grah is living with a mystic named Urga. This is Bill Hader. And the two are living in peace like they had originally been as a species way, way back when. You know, they, they're making this like this sort of odd couple type situation living together, but again, sort of foreshadowing the future. So then um, Andy Samberg gives uh, Gelfling's a history lesson via puppetry, which is very self-referential with how they do this. It's very cool. And they actually took this kid from YouTube who I didn't know this who this was, who does these like puppet things with his hands. And he actually did this whole scene. Very amazing. And this is basically a quick history lesson about Thra and the darkening and its spreading and everything. We then catch up with the hunter who's still looking for the Gelfling clan. Uh, and during the Gelfling's history lesson, they learn what we already know regarding the Skeksis and the mystics existing in that combined form called the Urskex. Again, from the end of the original movie. This episode makes more connections with the first Dark Crystal and the Gelflings learn about that sort of truth that they need to go find it and how important that is. And we'll see why the Skeksis now have joined force with these giant spiders and are, you know, ready to destroy everything to do with the Gelflings. So wrapping this one up, up awesome episode. It, it, like I love it cause it's bringing us more connections with the dark crystal legacy. It's super intense. Again, like I said, I'm not sure how far things are going to go in the series because it's series one and I don't know how many they intend, but we're like, it feels like, we know we're getting closer to the events of the that involve the original movie, but we're not sure how close. But you know, amazing. This this one's a nine out of ten to me. Episode eight: Prophets don't know everything. So the area called Stone in the Wood has been decimated, um, and Augur's trying to pick up all the pieces. Deet and Rianne are entering what they call the Breath of Thra, and they fly through it in a very Titanic type moment. We also get an old school scene where the Gelflings are going to be drained of their essence by the crystal. 
Augur has been spying on the Skeksis and everything's starting to come out in the open as far as them, you know, consuming Gelfling essence. The new Almadra or Queen Gelfling is now realizing what a terrible mistake she has made. Deet and Rian are battling those Audrey two um, creatures. And now there's some, you know, dissension starting to rise between the Skeksis. The, it's um, kind of chaos is emerging between them. We're seeing the Chamberlain's plan start to take fruition and also the almost demise of the archer, which with him going down is a symbolic symbolic blow to the other Skeksis because he's their most powerful. This episode has more themes to me of being in tune with nature, in tune with the world and humanity and people who battle against oppression and denying the status quo, you know, compared to others who just blindly follow along. This one's to me was, I don't know, extremely like, Again, and all these things are influenced, so you can't say one is like that. This is very beneath the planet of the apes to me. If you've ever seen that original movie, it, like as regard to the mind control and the underground society, so I I love that aspect to it. Uh, wrapping this episode up, the you know the underground gelflings are rising up to assist in battle. It's got that real little guy, you know, literally and metaphorically, you know, set to take on its larger oppressor, physically larger and you know overall. Um, larger and and holding them down. This episode is all about alliances, alignments. You know the tide is turning, resistance is forming. Deet we're seeing is rising up as the you know potentially the true hero. She's gaining some real uh, eleven from Stranger Things type powers that are given to her by the Sanctuary Tree. Yeah, very good episode. This one's like an eight and a half out of ten for me. Okay, episode nine, the penultimate episode, the Crystal Calls. The Skeksis are stopping at nothing now to try and restore the hunter, and they're using all the essence it takes. He Again, he represents their true strength and power, so in their minds, they see it as imperative to restore their most powerful asset. The Skeksis have realized for the first time they are not infinite, and they can die, and that's making them panic. Again, it's like when, however you want to read into this as far as, governments and power and when they realize that can be taken away that's when when you when the status quo is interrupted in in humanity that's when you see the ultimate panic and that's what we're seeing here augur is revealing her true power she's sharing she's sharing like compelling ideas of what exists after death you know this show goes very deep on some pretty intense themes but i mean that's at the core of the original movie so not surprisingly augur strikes her deal to restore the hunter as long as they let the three sister Gelflings go. and But she has an ultimate plan all along. So we're not sure where the Chamberlain's real uh, allegiances lie. I'm noticing he's sounding more like Super Mario in this episode, but whatever. We we lose Agra and find out that the Skeksis indeed can die. And we get a cool backstory in the history of the sword, uh, everything to do with that. The Chamberlain now has worked his way back into the Skeksis good graces and the scientist is starting to build an army from the dead corpse of one of those spiders that they find some notes from this episode again to me the the camera work in this one is awesome because it makes you feel like you're right in the scene like they're going <clears throat> with you know with a lot of shots with the, which I assume are those steady cams actually I'll get to that whole thing at the end of this episode but uh, like it, you're going through like these cameras are swooping through the scene. So you feel like you're right in them again. Like how amazing this would look in 3d. I think if they were, or to ever make another dark crystal feature film, who knows 
also like Mark Hamill to me is the best performer in the whole series with what he does with the scientist. I I think he's the, the among um, a ton of other creative and amazing good performances. Like his stands out, I think. So this one, something on this episode, it's kind of like Avengers assembling. We're preparing for the final battle. Rian is able to broadcast the final call to all the Gelfings, kind of like Wade does in Ready Player One at the end. You know, the the culmination is upon us, and he's um, bringing everyone together. So awesome, awesome episode, 9 out of 10 on this one. The last final episode, episode 10, a single piece was lost. We go into the final episode with Deet unaware of what is causing the changes that are happening to her. The emperor is harnessing the power of the darkness. And we find out that the darkness cannot be destroyed. It can only be transferred because it's energy. This series is showing us the power of banding together and the importance of community. And again, it's got like, you see these themes come up in all sorts of other content over the years and decades, you know, like, like the Ewoks, it's a small group seemingly inferior but they can still surprise you you know what i mean never underestimating your opponent um Rian, you know does his best sort of william wallace braveheart thing to hype up the gelflings in the battle uh, while this is going on the scientist is still going all dr frankenstein the augra has given the archer the ability to see where the hunter is going who is now seemed like turn more into like super shredder and the battle starts with this awesome, like all the women lead the attack and it's like, cause they can all fly. So this amazing wing attack starts the whole thing. I, I feel like with this, we're getting the reveal of what really happened to the emperor in the original movie. You remember when he sort of like dies and crumbles and dusts himself. And, you know, we're seeing what the Chamberlain is capable of to his fellow Skeksis here. You know, the hunters come back to run amok. Um, the archer comes back, kind of rolls out like Optimus Prime here and, you know, is involved in this amazing self-sacrifice moment involving Augur. And if you remember from the movie, because they, the Skeksis and the Mystics are in tune, every time one of them dies, the opposite member die. you know, so like if one of the Mystics dies, a Skeksis dies with it because they're that, they're, you know, they're drawn from the same being. So, you know, with this one, it, it's not surprising, like all the tribes of the Gelfling show up to save the day. You know, the the darkening is unleashed, but Deet ultimately saves the day, again, in a very Eleven versus the Mind Flayer type way. And, you know, like we know, actually, we're not sure because we don't know. We know at some point all the Gelflings are going to be eliminated because of how the Dark Crystal movie is. But the way this one ends is, you know, they for they fought to live another day. And the series ends with the reveal of the Shard. And we also get an awesome finish with seeing the newly created Gartham, which are now a combination of those little monk-like creatures that walk around in the, and the spiders. And the scientist has created them to the Gartham, which we'd seen in the original movie. So that's awesome. A great finale to the series. Perfectly leaves things nice and open. Again, we didn't, we're not sure how much time exists between this, um, this prequel and the original movie, but it gives us enough of everything to want to see more, but then, you know, connecting things to the original dark crystal. So a great, awesome finale. I give this one in, you know, an eight and a half ish, 8.75 out of 10. So I'll wrap it up here. Like, you know, I, this could go a lot longer, but I wanted to give a rundown of each episode and that's my review. And just to sort of sum up this whole thing and, you know, Netflix 
is honestly amazing to me. It, you forget, like you pay what ten bucks a month, and when it includes shows like this, you feel like it should cost way more than this. It feels like to me, it's something like to me like again, Stranger Things or something. I feel we're getting more personally more value than just ten bucks a month. Like I would pay happily pay extra for some. I hope Netflix doesn't listen and get any crazy ideas here. But you know, it feels like these series are so good. You you should buy them in addition. And that you're getting all this for ten bucks is ridiculous. Like with that, with how much production goes into these things, it's amazing. You know, the series it's magical, it's sweeping, it's dark, it's creative, it's compelling. Um, everything that goes behind it is unreal. Like the sets, the cinematography, it expands the whole Dark Crystal universe. Like immensely expands it. It's as good as those trailers look for it. Um, and, you know, a real surprise to get this thing nearly 40 years after the original movie first debuted, you know, like out of nowhere. I remember when I saw that, when did that trailer come out before summer or during summer? I was like, holy crap. Like I forgot all about the dark crystal, but they've been working away on this amazing um, piece of entertainment. You know, something that Jim Henson would be immensely proud of, I would say. So like I was saying, as you're watching this thing, and you're continuously saying, like, I have, how in the hell did they make this? If you hopefully have finished the series, or if you haven't, and kept watching at the end credits, you know there's a whole, like, bonus hidden track, which is, um, I love that Netflix is doing this. It's also on the Dave Chappelle, Dave Chappelle's most recent stand-up, the Sticks and Stones one, that they have hidden content in it. So when the the credits finish, it takes you to a different, you know, when you see like the Netflix screen where it's got like the image or logo or whatever in it, you know, you can play or add to list or whatever. Like, so like it's a whole new title that you can't find anywhere else. Like, I, I think you can maybe type them in and search for them, but it's connected as like a hidden track. And at the end of the credits of the Dark Crystal Age of Resistance, there is a full documentary showing how they made this whole thing. So it's it's almost like they knew people were going to be kind of baffled how they pulled this off. And they're like, bam, here you go. Here it is. It's a whole hidden thing. So if somehow you missed this, go back and let the credits play and it'll take you to this whole new um, chapter or pro or whatever. I love this stuff that Netflix does. Okay, that's it. That's long enough. I hope you like this. Uh, if you had like, you know, your own feedback or wanted to mention things, just give me an email at jamie at everything80spodcast.com. Tell me what you think of it. Again, if you haven't already subscribed to the podcast, wherever you find podcasts, if you really like it, leave it a rating and review and then more people get to see it. Okay, that's it for me. Talk to you later. Bye.